Yeah, good to see you, and uh, uh, hope everyone's enjoying the World Cup. Uh, <laughs> Australia lives another day. Argentina lives another day. So very exciting. I'm going for Argentina. Sorry, <coughs> uh, but and England, and England. No, <laughs> England could be good. It's coming home. Yeah. Hey, we're continuing in Mark's Gospel today, the crucifixion of Jesus, chapter 15. We'll go just to verse 32. There's so much to say, I couldn't get all of it in. Ever since I, we started this series way back when, I've wanted to get to this moment, and I've discovered all these exciting things about what happened and why, and I want to share some of those with you, and I guess it's it's a good way to have a fresh look at something as familiar as the crucifixion by going into it more deeply. Mark doesn't give us a lot of information about the method of crucifixion and that's typical for that time. Crucifixion isn't described in much detail in any of the ancient documents. In fact, um, it's, it's the kind of cruel death that people think is the kind of thing that's better not to talk about. Um, and anyway, everyone knew what it was because they'd all seen it. It was right across the Roman Empire and people would have witnessed it at some stage or other. And Mark doesn't give us too much information about the kind of gruesome details of the crucifixion. His focus seems to be on two themes. Jesus' conquest and Jesus' self-giving love. Conquest is that Jesus is being established and crowned as king. It's his coronation. But it's a very unusual coronation because he comes as king while they're rejecting him as king. And it's staggering how much he is declared to be king, but it's all in sarcasm and mockery as they spit on him, beat him, flog him, scourge him, and lift him up to be crucified. And Mark's point is that it's through his suffering and death that his conquest and coronation occur. And that it's through the humiliation and the shame of what he goes through that he is victorious because he gives his life as a ransom for many. So let's look at this and just a warning. Yeah, it is, it is sad, sad stuff. Last week we looked at Jesus' arrest and trial before Caiaphas and the Jewish council, the Jewish court. Now they take him to the Roman governor, Pilate. The Jewish people at the time didn't have the right to execute the sentence of death on anyone. The Romans reserved that right for themselves. And so the Jewish court had passed the sentence of death on Jesus according to what they saw, but now they have to translate their charge and their guilty verdict into language that Pilate will care about because certainly Pilate doesn't care that Jesus has said blasphemous things quoting the Old Testament. 
and claimed in some sense to be God. Pilate doesn't care. Two hoots about that. And so the Jews come claiming that Jesus has claimed to be the king of the Jews, to be spearheading uh, a revolutionary kingdom of God movement. And yes, Pilate does care about that. (laughs) Um, If he didn't, he wouldn't be doing his job as the local Roman governor. So verse 1, very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans and they bound Jesus, led him away and handed him over to Pilate. And Mark skips over what we in our imaginations might want to delve deeply into, which is what was it like for Jesus between the sentence of death by the Jewish council where he was put in prison and waited until now he's handed over to Pilate. What was it like for Jesus in those hours awaiting the execution in a dungeon? And if you go to Jerusalem, tour guides will take you down a long flight of stairs to to this prison underneath Caiaphas's house where it's believed Jesus spent some time, some hours, awaiting being handed over to the Romans. And it's suggested that down in that dark place uh, that you read Psalm 88, which ends with, Lovers and friends, you have taken far from me, and darkness is my only companion. And it's apparently very moving, and uh, if you go to Jerusalem, worth, worth doing that. But anyway, Jesus is then taken to Pontius Pilate. Pilate is in Jerusalem in, at this time. Uh, normally he's based at Caesarea Maritima on the coast. You see there. But during the Passover festival, he'd come and stay in Jerusalem, usually at Herod's palace. This is Herod the Great who no longer is living. Um, So he'd stay and use Herod's palace. Herod Antipas is Herod the Great's son who's ruling in Galilee, but now Pilate is ruling in Judea. And so he goes and uses the old palace of Herod. And wherever Pilate would stay, that immediately became the imperial palace called the Praetorium. It's like the President of the United States. Uh, Whatever plane the President is on is Air Force One, right? Uh, And there is a plane that's specifically Air Force One, but if he chose to use another airline, uh, that call sign of that airline would become, that airplane would become Air Force One, simply because the President is on that plane. Well, it's like that here. Wherever Pilate is, that place immediately becomes the Praetorium, uh, the Roman headquarters, the Roman palace. Uh, So Pilate is in Jerusalem and they bring Jesus to him. And in verse 2, Pilate rather abruptly asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you have said so which is neither yes nor no. 
And what's happening here is I think Jesus wants Pilate to decide what the charge is. And he does. Pilate decides, yes, you were the king of the Jews. And verse 3, at that point, the chief priests begin accusing Jesus of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply. And Pilate was amazed. And I think this is a beautiful statement of Jesus' authority in this moment. Because in verse 5, he makes no reply. He stays silent in the face of all these accusations. Um, In the face of impending death where his life is in the balance. He has such poise and such authority that he can stand there and not fight back and not argue his case. This echoes Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant, Isaiah 53 verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Now these accusations the chief priests are bringing against Jesus are probably things like he claims to be king, uh, insurrection, disturbance of the peace, causing riots, things of that nature. And Jesus doesn't respond. And Pilate is amazed. Now, we've seen the response of amazement, haven't we? Right throughout Mark's Gospel. Uh, But usually it's what Jesus has said or done (laughs) that has caused the amazement. Right from the first day in Capernaum onwards, where he healed a man with an unclean spirit, people were amazed. As he heals people, people are amazed. As he taught, people are amazed at his authority. The disciples were amazed that he could say to the wind and the waves, be still, and they were. But here, it's not what Jesus does or says that so amazes Pilate. It's it's what Jesus doesn't say, his silence. And I think Jesus' silence in this moment is akin to his miracles. uh, That that Pilate has such an expectation that Jesus would answer these accusations, that for Pilate, this is absolutely astonishing. It's miraculous. How could a man do that and stand before them like this with such dignity and such honour and such poise? Anyway, verse 6, the festival of Passover is freedom time. It's celebrating the release from captivity in Egypt. What is Pilate going to do to celebrate it? (laughs) Well, if he's got one or two prisoners, why not let one out? And so this was Pilate's custom that at Passover time, he would allow a prisoner to go free. Of course, he kept his Roman boot on the neck of the people for the rest of the year. So verse 7, there's a man called Barabbas who's in prison with other rebels who've committed murder during, we're told, 
the, the insurrection, the rebellion. This is interesting. It's the only time we hear about the fact that there'd been some kind of anti-Roman uprising shortly before Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. And of course, if it was a genuine Jewish rebellion, they would have thought of it not as murder. They would have seen it as zeal for Israel. Maybe in a daring raid at night or something, they had to kill a few people in order to get the job done. Anyway, the Romans have done what they usually do. <laughs> They've rounded up the ringleaders and put them in prison. And a number of those leaders, including Barabbas, are now awaiting death. By the way, people like this were known as laestai, which is brigands or freedom fighters, guerrilla fighters. And later in this chapter, Jesus is crucified between two laestai. These men are not thieves, they're not robbers. They are most certainly part of revolutionary or insurrectionist groups within Israel. They are rebels. So verse 8, the crowd come and ask Pilate to do what he normally did. We want you to release someone for us. And he says, okay, would you like for me to release for you the king of the Jews? Looking at Jesus. Now, clearly Pilate doesn't believe Jesus is actually the king of the Jews. But verse 10, he realizes the chief priests have handed Jesus over out of jealousy. The chief priests want Jesus out of the way because he's a threat to their power. And Pilate realizes this. And so Pilate is trying to do the opposite of what the chief priests want. Pilate was like that. He always tried to do the opposite of what the Jewish leaders wanted uh, to let them know that he's not their puppet and they exist for his pleasure, thank you very much, and would be answerable to him. And also, though Pilate is amazed by Jesus, I think he thinks he's innocent. And he wants to release Jesus. And he seems to expect the crowds want Jesus released as well. And the very fact that Pilate offers Jesus to be released means that Jesus, according to Pilate, can't be a threat. That is, that Pilate doesn't believe the charges, that he's causing riots, that he's an insurrectionist who will lead a guerrilla warfare against Rome or something and disturb the peace. Pilate sees that those charges are false, that Jesus is in fact innocent. Otherwise, why would he offer Jesus to be released? And so when Pilate presents Jesus to the crowd and says, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? My sense is that he expects the crowd to say yes, that he expects the crowds to want this. Perhaps he's seen the crowds flocking to Jesus. Honouring Jesus as he came in on a colt of a donkey into Jerusalem, saying, Hosanna, laying down their cloaks and palm branches before Jesus. And perhaps Pilate expects that the crowds will want Jesus to be released. And Pilate sees that Jesus is innocent. Um, 
and safe to release. And I think for Pilate, there's a sense in which if he did that, if he released Jesus, he could tweak the noses of the Jewish leaders as well as keep the peace with the crowds. And that would be a great win for him. Of course, the story changes because in verse 11, the chief priests have stirred up the crowd and the crowd now wants him to release Barabbas instead. Now, this stirring up of the crowds by the chief priests means that the crowds didn't come as a lynch mob demanding that Jesus be crucified. What happened was that the chief priests stirred them up towards this. This is one of the ways that the chief priests are going to put pressure on Pilate to crucify Jesus. And so the crowds say they don't want Jesus. They want Barabbas instead. And verse 12 is interesting. Pilate seems to have trouble understanding why the crowds don't want Jesus. And he says to them, wow, if you want Barabbas, what do you want me to do with this one you call the king of the Jews? He doesn't understand why they don't want Jesus. And what they do is they cry out, crucify him. And Pilate wants a conversation. Why? Why would you crucify him? What has he done? What evil has he done? But they won't debate with Pilate. And they yell out all the more, crucify him. And we can only imagine what that was like for Jesus to hear his people, the ones he'd shepherded, loved, healed, cared for, all en masse yelling, crucify him. Choosing Barabbas, a criminal, instead. And then in verse 15, Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd acquiesces. This is not the first time in Mark's Gospel that we've seen the crowd determining an action. Think back to Herod, Herod Antipas in Galilee, when he suddenly finds himself trapped in a situation of his own making um, and he, he ends up beheading John the Baptist because he'd made certain promises to his guests and to honour those he has to go through with it even though he likes John the Baptist. He's attracted to John the Baptist's holiness and purity. And he doesn't want to kill John the Baptist. Nonetheless, to please his guests, he has John beheaded. And there's a parallel here with Pilate. Pilate is kind of set up this situation of his own making in his own cleverness, trying to find a way to release Jesus by using the crowds to do it. And it's backfired. And the reverse now has happened because the crowds are yelling, crucify him. So now Pilate has a choice. Does he stand up to the crowds, declare Jesus' innocence and refuse to crucify him? Or does he acquiesce to the crowds? He acquiesces to the crowds. It's interesting 
previously the crowds were the reason that the religious leaders uh, were hesitant to arrest Jesus. They were afraid the crowds would riot. But now the crowds are the ones directing the action. And throughout Mark's Gospel, haven't we seen that the crowds are so fickle? Amazed at Jesus' teaching, yet they haven't really come to follow him. And here they just turn on him. So for political gain and social peace, Pilate agrees to crucify a man he knows is innocent. He knows that Jesus is just there because the chief priests are jealous of him. But he does it nonetheless. He releases Barabbas, has Jesus flogged, and delivers him over for crucifixion. And this shows us the meaning of Jesus' death, that the innocent one, Jesus, dies in place of the guilty. In this case, Barabbas. But the general point is that the victory Jesus wins is achieved through him, the innocent, dying in the place of the guilty, taking the punishment of the guilty upon himself and dying that death as a substitutionary uh, representative. He dies in our place, for we are the sinners. He takes our punishment upon himself. And then verse 16, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers, a lot of men. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they begin to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. This is essentially a mock coronation. It has all the vestiges of a victory parade by Caesar or the installation of a new Caesar, a new emperor. Of course, here, done in mockery. Put a purple cloak on him, purple the colour of royalty. They put a laurel on him, like Caesar wore, but it's a laurel made of thorns. And instead of crying, Hail, Caesar, <laughs> Emperor, which they would have particularly done as Caesar came in in victory, on a, in a victory procession. Instead of yelling, Hail, Caesar, they're yelling, Hail, King of the Jews. Long live the king whom we're about to execute in a few moments' time. It's all a joke to them. It's all fun. And they fall down on their knees in mock homage. And again and again, verse 19, they beat him on the head with a staff, which seems to be a mock scepter that they've had him hold, but now they're using it to beat him again and again on the head. It's all full of contempt. And they're hitting him continually and they're spitting on him, which is another prophecy of Jesus coming true. Uh, it's also a prophecy of the suffering servant. In Isaiah 50 verse 6, I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. And all of this is now taking place. And notice there's no comfort given to Jesus. None at all. 
just this whole battalion of soldiers beating him, spitting on him, mocking him. And you can just feel the vitriol and the meanness of it. In verse 20, now Jesus begins uh, to walk to where he will be crucified. Crucifixions only happen in very public settings. Rome would use crucifixion as a message, and so it had to be in public. And it was very long and painful days sometimes before a man would die. And a man being crucified typically didn't die from bleeding to death. They often died from suffocation, the inability to breathe, because in order to breathe, they had to pull themselves up to allow their lungs to expand. And through the crucifixion, the man was weakened so much that he could no longer do that and suffocated to death. If it wasn't suffocation, starvation and dehydration. But it was a long, long, long process. Usually during the process, they begin to be eaten by birds and wild dog packs and beasts. And it was done in a very public setting because it demonstrated the power of Rome. And that this is what Rome would do to anyone who dared to stand up against them. And it was as much a message as it was a capital punishment. If it was simply a capital punishment, well, there are more efficient ways to kill people. And indeed, if you were a Roman citizen you could choose a less shameful death than crucifixion. Because crucifixion was all about shame and humiliation. Because not only were you powerless and dying slowly, but you were stripped naked and exposed in front of the most crowded locations for everyone to see. It had all the social and physical Aspects that were associated with shame. Which is why when Paul talks to the Corinthian church about God choosing the most shameful in the eyes of this world, he says, we proclaim Christ and him crucified. Because crucifixion is the ultimate display of shame. And yet Paul says, it's where the ultimate victory of Jesus happened. And so the Romans had these public places and they'd have a vertical post that was always in place and the condemned man would carry the horizontal part to the place of execution. This was part of the shaming that he had to carry this through the crowds. So verse 21, they compelled a passerby coming in from the country to carry Jesus' cross. It's probably just the cross piece, but it was too heavy for Jesus. The man in question is Simon of Cyrene, the father, we're told, of Alexander and Rufus, who must have been known by the Christian community that Mark is writing to. Now, compelling someone to carry someone else's cross showed the authority of Rome, but it also shows the physical state of Jesus. He's too weak to carry his cross. 
Just all that he'd been through, up all night, all the, everything. He now cannot carry his cross. And of course the Romans didn't want their victims to become unconscious. They certainly didn't want their victims to die early because the whole point of the cross was to elongate that, to cause maximum agony and humiliation. And so they get Simon of Cyrene, probably up for the Passover festival. They get him to carry Jesus' cross. Verse 22, And so they bring Jesus to the place called Golgotha, meaning the place of the skull. It's just outside the western wall of the old city. Place of the skull may refer to, if we could go to that next one, the shape of a hill. But the fact that Jesus... That, that Mark doesn't bother to translate, translate the Aramaic name here means that he understood it as the place of execution, place of the skull. And Mark is heightening the sense of horror that we have. It's skull place. I've always wondered why we refer to this as Calvary. And when I was a young boy, I used to sing all those hymns about Calvary with my Aboriginal church that I was part of when I was a boy. Burdens are lifted at Calvary and we'd sing it with such emotion. It was amazing. Burdens are lifted at Calvary. What is Calvary? Calvary actually is the Latin for skull place. But Calvary sounds, well, it's easier to put that in a song, isn't it? <laughs> but the label skull place is, is Mark heightening the horror of what is taking place. And it would have been a thoroughfare, it would have been a place many people go by and as we see in Jesus' crucifixion, many people are going past. Verse 23, the soldiers offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. Um, is this a sedative to help dull the pain, a form of comfort, or is it a, a bitter revolting taste that was offered in, in insult. Given what we've already seen of the soldiers mocking Jesus, I think this is another insult, not a comfort. It's something that looks like it's going to be a comfort, but actually it causes more distress because it's so bitter. It's taking advantage of Jesus' exhausted state, his extreme thirst, offering him a drink that if he drank it, would be disgusting and doing it as another form of mockery. But Jesus refuses it, perhaps because he realises what it is, but perhaps because at the Last Supper he said, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine anew until I drink it in the kingdom of God. But regardless, this shows Jesus' clarity of mind, even at this stage, he's able to say no. And verses 24 to 25, at nine in the morning, they crucify him. Soldiers divide his clothes among them, casting lots to decide who gets what. All of this echoes Old Testament Psalms, Psalm 69, the sour wine offered, Psalm 22, the dividing of the clothes. And so verse 26, the inscription of the charge against him reads, the king of the Jews. So when people were crucified, the Romans put a notice of their charge above their head on the cross 
as a way of saying to anybody, don't you even think about doing this. This is what will happen to you. Verse 27, uh, no. Um, Yeah, and so in the other Gospels, this charge above the head is written in Hebrew, Greek and Latin. So we get this incredibly clear public announcement of the true identity of Jesus as he dies. Verse 27, Jesus crucified with two laced die, two bandits, one on the left, one on the right. Remember back in chapter 10, verse 40, James and John want to be on Jesus' left and right when he comes into his glory. And this is Mark's subtle way of saying, this is when Jesus came into his glory. This is the glory of Jesus' compassion and love. Remember in the wilderness, Jesus looked out on the crowds with compassion. They are like sheep without a shepherd. Remember Jesus looked at the rich rich young ruler and loved him. And this is where Jesus' compassion and love have brought him to this place. And this is where his calling as the servant of the Lord has brought him to give his life as a ransom for many. To not be served, but to serve. And the prophecy where we get all of that from is Isaiah 53, actually the bit before it. Isaiah 52, the kings of the earth will shut their mouths because of him. Because they'd never imagined that the servant of the Lord would offer his body in sacrifice and suffering for the sins of many. And so the kings of the earth are astonished back in Isaiah's vision of this moment. And here we see already Pilate astonished. And in a moment we'll see the centurion supervising the crucifixion astonished. And we will see the world as the gospel goes out, astonished that this servant of the Most High God came and went through the most brutal, awful, disgusting death so that we could go free. And so this execution reveals Jesus' glory. Not the glory of a fake purple robe put on Jesus by the Romans. Not the glory of Rome, which is power. Not the glory that might have been his had he given into temptation and chosen the way of power rather than the way of love. If he'd done that, he would have become the wrong kind of king. Mark is saying he's become the right kind of king. The power of love, not the love of power. Finally, the mocking of the bystanders, verse 29. People come by and say, you said you destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. Also, the chief priests and the teachers of the law are mocking him. He saved others, but he can't save himself. 
If you really were the King of Israel, if you really were the Messiah, come down from the cross and then we would see and believe. This goes all the way back to those people asking for a sign from heaven in Mark chapter 8. And it goes all the way back before that to Mark chapter 1 where Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Because Jesus has warned his disciples that they must not come into this perasmos, this moment of trial when the forces of evil and darkness fall upon Jesus. This is what Jesus is going through. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. That's Satan's words. Remember in Matthew's Gospel, Luke's Gospel, Satan says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself off this mountain and I'll rescue, the angels will come. Or if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. All of that. In other words, obey me, says Satan. And here it's, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Of course, the whole point is that it's because he is the Messiah, the Son of God, that he doesn't come down from the cross. That this is how the world is redeemed. Because as the King of Israel, he must do for Israel and the world what we cannot do for ourselves. He must go through with it to the bitter end. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. But by not saving himself, he is saving others. And they mock him for his promise of destroying the temple and building it in three days. Whether he said it like that or not, it doesn't matter. And Mark wants us to see that actually Jesus in his death is replacing the temple at Jerusalem. He's being the meeting point now between God and the world between heaven and earth. It's the cross where that happens. That God the creator is meeting his people in that place. This is the temple. Will he rebuild it in three days time? Yes, he certainly will. And a new world will be launched in which heaven and earth come together in a way that the temple was only ever pointing towards. And heaven and earth, divinity and humanity have been in Jesus all along. Paul in Philippians 2 puts it so well. He says Christ was in the form of God, but he didn't count equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, took the form of a servant, and being found in human likeness, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This awful slave's death, this dirty, disgusting, humiliating death. And Paul says, therefore, and it's what a beautiful word, therefore, God has highly exalted him 
and given him the name that is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess Jesus, Messiah, is Lord. The Greek kurios is the Caesar title. The one brutally killed by the Romans now is in charge of the world and Caesar is not. So this is Mark's story of how Jesus came to glory and how through the depth of suffering and love he came to the place of victory and overcame the world's evil by taking our place and our punishment upon himself. I wanted to close with a song I wrote. I'm not going to sing it. Uh, <laughs> maybe when I was 20. And it goes like this. Butchered like an animal. Cut down like a dog. Your lungs filled up and you drowned in your blood. It should have been me. It should have been me. The weight of your body tore your life away when they nailed you on the wall for public display. It should have been me. It should have been me. I committed the crime. You committed the innocence. But just in the nick of time, you let them hang my offence on you. And it should have been me. It should have been me. You were very much a man with dirt in your nails and nails in your hands. You were man enough to bleed for me. But am I man enough? Do I have the guts? to believe in you. And that's what Mark is saying. Do we see and believe? Amen.